Welcome to Season 2 of American Political History, The Second Wave, The Anglo-Powhatan Wars. In 1617, Opechee took leadership of the Powhatan Confederacy. He was more practical and pragmatic than his brother who had ruled for the past generation. He saw Jamestown expanding and understood that there was a limited window of opportunity to strike and put Jamestown back into its place before it would become too powerful for the Confederacy to handle. The Powhatan culture was already feeling the societal pressures of fur traders, religious missionaries, alcohol, and plantation farming around them, which had disrupted the rhythms of the Powhatan's daily life. He took umbrage that the English's livestock could roam into his territory and destroy his crops. And furthering this outrage was that Jamestown's magistrates sided with the English farmers, saying that the Powhatans needed to replace the livestock that they had killed, that same livestock that had roamed into the Powhatans' territory. The opportunity in front of them was simple. Jamestown had expanded so fast that it was scattered defensively. If he could arrange with other nations to strike at once with the element of surprise, they could inflict such a heavy blow that Jamestown would have to beg for terms of peace. From there, he could control English trade and influence Jamestown how he wished. Opie Chan Cano started talking and organizing with the broader Tidewater nations. He forged a consensus that they all together would strike all at once from the inside of the English settlements. Remember that in 1617, the relations between natives and Jamestown was almost continual with comings and goings inside of the settlements that were around Jamestown. Often, Natives and Englishmen would share meals or drinks. Some were even friends. This active social interchange would be the weakness that he could exploit to ensure quick, decisive victory. You might be thinking right now, this plan obviously didn't work. The English came and then conquered the native nations. You would be totally mistaken. This attack went off perfectly. It was well-organized and effective. Warriors from ten Powhatan nations would wander into English settlements that morning under the banner of peace and trade, specifically picked because the English knew these warriors as friends. And then, in a split second, those friends would grab any object and suddenly kill everyone without mercy, raiding settlements of valuables and then setting fire to the buildings. The Virginia colony had been divided into four company-controlled areas around Jamestown. The attack killed the inhabitants of three out of four of the settlement areas. The fourth, the area of Elizabethtown, was only saved the last minute because a Powhatan nation that had converted to Christianity warned the English about the plans minutes before the attack. This attack accomplished all of its military objectives. It was a devastating blow to the English, with an estimated 20% of the population of the Virginia colony killed that morning. If this scale of attack was to happen today, it would take the deaths of the top 200 American cities to get close to a 20% loss of the U.S. population. You would have to get all the way down the list of American cities to cities like Panoma, California, or Hollywood, Florida, or Round Rock, Texas. And of course, I'm including all 
of the famous high-population cities like New York City, Chicago, Houston, and Los Angeles. This attack was on a scale of death to proportion of the population that was there that no American has ever witnessed since. Not even in the aftermath of any of the wars that we have fought would we face this proportion of death to the total population. Now, of course, the populations were much lower, so the total amount of people killed was far lower than, say, World War II. And these had not been some random native warriors making war. These had been natives specifically picked because they were friends and on a friendly relationship with the English in those towns. They very likely, a few days before, or even that morning, had shared bread in fellowship. Since the Pocahontas peace had started, there had only been occasional small skirmishes, nothing to have tipped off the English of this impending war. It's easy, 400 years in the future, to drop the emotional aspects of these events. But to understand history, we need to think of these events in terms we understand. Do we ever ask about why the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor? The Japanese had a logical and rational motive to start that war. The U.S. government had blocked oil supplies, which meant that the Japanese empire would have to accept a subferior position on the world stage to the United States. And I know this World War II analogy isn't the greatest, except for us to understand the emotional impact of violent acts of war. If you think that you have been aggrieved and that the other side is treacherous, you're not going to seek a negotiated peace for a future together. You're going to seek vengeance. When the news of this attack reached London, the king would revoke the Virginia Company's charter the Crown government would take direct legal control of Virginia from that point forward. And this war would last from 1617 until 1632. The predominant English war tactic, because of their weak position compared to the Powhatan, would be that of feed fights, attacking their crops, food, food stores, habitation, so that the population of the Powhatan would starve and die in the upcoming winter months. But the legacy of this war is much broader than the consequences on the battlefield. The English, self-interestedly, had continued to view the natives as simply lacking the word of God, a lost tribe of Israel who had to be brought back into the flock. The Virginia Company had invested in a large college for teaching, training, and civilizing natives from paganism. Governor Yardley was told to set aside 10,000 acres of company land for this college. During the attack, the college and its unarmed clergy were even ruthlessly slaughtered, and the building was burnt to the ground. The hearts of the surviving English had been ruptured. They saw themselves as wayfarers for the natives to the path of God. They saw themselves as friends to the natives. But now, now in the minds of English, the native people were not grasping for God. They were devils, undeserving of any gentleness or pardon for their crimes. The newly appointed governor of Virginia would say that in the first Anglo-Powhatan Wars, the colonists had tied their hands in hopes of eventual peace and conversion. But Opie Chan Cano's treacherousness, 
he had, just before this attack, actually negotiated a continuation of trade, peace, and religious interchange with Jamestown. But that peace offering was now seen for what it was, a deliberate deception to facilitate his treachery upon the English. Unbeknownst, he had now freed the hands of the English to bring real war upon the natives. No longer would the English confine themselves to the scraps of Indian wastelands. Now, by right of war and the law of nations, the English would invade and take whatever Indian lands they pleased. I'm not sure that I call this a myth exactly, but I hear all the time that the settlers didn't care about native lives as people and the English were just white supremacists motivated simply by that. They killed all the natives and pushed them off their lands. A lazy interpretation of history. White supremacy is a social invention after these people's time. Most certainly, the English viewed their culture as superior, so it would be more accurate to view the English culture as, say, a supremacy of culture or religious views. Race was not the dominating factor and issue it is today. Religion was the dominating social structure. Whiteness was no protection against these burgeoning European empires. We forget today that North America was not England's first colonial adventure. Ireland was England's first colonial adventure. In the 17th century, more than 120,000 English and Scottish people, with the aid of the royal army, would take holdings in the northernmost habitable parts of Ireland. This consisted of over one-third of the landmass of Ireland. The English considered the Irish as a soulless, barbaric people incapable of God's salvation. Denying them rights, social status, and any form of representation in government? And this would continue until the beginning of the 20th century. In the 17th century, more English and Scottish people would immigrate to Ireland than to all of the American colonies. The English Empire's expansion wasn't based on whiteness or the lack thereof in the native populations of America, who were often described as having a fair white complexion. It was this second war in Virginia that moved the natives from souls crying out for salvation to a soulless people like the Irish. Religion was the paradigm, and the native populations had now shown their place in the English's religious hierarchy of peoples. The English crown would evaluate how this devastating loss had happened. Their conclusions were that the Virginia colony had spread out settlers without a plan for their protection, that the natural barbarity and Satanism of the Indians had been overlooked, and that the Indians could not see that. All of this bloodshed that they had inflicted upon Jamestown would be good for the English in the long run as the English would, in their mind, of course, win this war and seize lands as the spoils of that war. After years of the feed wars in the Second Anglo-Powhatan War, it ended in a near stalemate. The English made some small territorial expansions, but the Powhatans still held far more land and had a larger population than Jamestown. But after the war, the English would allow few natives into their territory, and only for short periods of time. The era of the Anglo-Powhatan cultural interchange had ended. 
Jamestown would continue to be resupplied by immigrants from England, and every year it expanded its military and economic might relative to the Powhatan nation. And this was well, the Powhatans were surrounded by, at best, impartial other native nations of the interior. Squeezed from all sides, the Powhatan would launch another surprise attack in 1644. Unlike the Second Anglo-Powhatan War, this Third War would be best described as a fitful death throw of a society, where years of attrition and war had left them mortally wounded. The initial sneak attack this time left only dozens killed. Jamestown had built forts and palisades to defend their border regions. Only the most outlying settlers were exposed to this attack. Although this sneak attack was much less militarily successful in terms of English casualties, the English in London would portray this as further proof of Indians' natural tendency for treachery. This Third Anglo-Powhatan War would only last two years, ending with the capture and execution of Opichan Kano. Nekatowance would take over leadership of the Powhatan, signing a humiliating treaty of capitulation to the English. The Powhatan nation would now be a tributary of King Charles. They would owe an ongoing tribute to Jamestown, and Jamestown would get large territorial concessions for their agreeing to this peace. A few years after this was signed, Nectotowance would die fighting in a battle alongside English militia. His successor would not even be able to claim the title of Chief of the Powhatan Confederacy. There was no confederacy left to claim. Although the treaty had specified the land rights of the Powhatan nation, the Powhatan would face constant encroachment from individual planters on their lands. Harassment when they protested about the encroachment, and even the murder of one of their chiefs by local farmers when he had the audacity to take this issue to an English magisterial court. Eventually, the English would coerce the remnants of the Powhatan nation into an even more humiliating treaty. The remnants would receive the rights to a small reservation. The English magistrate at the time thought of a reservation as providing a better legal protection for the natives on their lands. But for those from a nation that had reigned over vast lands a generation before, how could they not see this as a tiny prison to eke out their existence? A devil's bargain was in front of them. Give up your culture and incorporate into the lowest rungs of the conqueror's culture, or stay isolated, poor and impoverished, within a small reservation. Your only satisfaction was being able to claim that you somehow maintained some small semblance of your culture. The Powhatan might have been one of the first native nations to have to make this choice, but it would certainly not be the last nation to have to make this choice. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.